I'm Marco Foley. I am a student. I am a son. I am a Christian. I'm confident. I'm a nice guy. I am athletic. I am loyal. I'm trustworthy. I'm Marco Fuller. I am a disciple. Oh, those are bright. Well, good morning. Glad to see you're all here today. Was that worship sweet or what? You know, we are blessed as a church to have so many people who can just step in here and lead us to the throne of grace with such beauty and power and love. Uh, God is good to us in that way. Well, today we are kicking off a series that will carry us through this summer, uh, basically. And, and the name of the series is, Who Do You Think You Are? Let me, let me put that, who do you really think you are? It's really not meant to be said with an edge like that. It's just, who do you think you are? You see, the answer to that question in each of our lives will actually tell us what are the blessings of our lives as well as the responsibilities that are in our lives. So I asked myself that question, who do you think you are, Bill? And I thought, well, first and foremost, I'm a child of the living God. So there's incredible blessing in that, and there's indeed a lot of responsibility that goes with that. We'll actually unwrap some of that even here today. But I'm also a husband, and oh my goodness, to be a husband to Bambi is like virtually blessing upon blessing upon blessing with a little bit of responsibility. She is amazing, uh, just amazing. And then I'm a father. I have two children, Mariah and Elisha. They are blessings, but boy, are they a real lot of responsibility, those two are. Just a lot of work. But you know what? I'm a grandfather. Woo All blessing, no responsibility. I love it. Just awesome. That, that's just cool. But I also happen to be a son. And my mother is at a part in life right now where my responsibilities towards my mother are actually increasing uh, at this stage of her life. I'm a brother. I have two sisters who are outside of the faith at this point, and so my responsibilities there are a constant reminder to me. But I'm also a pastor. <laughs> lots of blessing, and oh my gosh, are you people a lot of work. No, I mean, lots of responsibility. So lots of responsibility go with that title, that position, that description of who I am, and I'm also a friend, and I have lots of blessings and some responsibilities in those areas as well. So we're all like that, aren't we? We all have all of these designations, all these hats that we wear. Each of those hats represents a relationship where we are blessed, but also where we have responsibility. Well, that's what we're doing with this series. Uh, the basic premise behind this series is if you know what God calls you or what your, your, your name or designation is given to you by the Lord, then you know what he wants you to do. And so we're going to look at these five areas beginning this week and, and playing out over the rest of the summer. I am a disciple, I am an ambassador, I am a masterpiece, I am an overcomer, I am salt and light. Now there are 36 some designations in the Bible concerning the people of God. So we're just barely scratching the surface here. But our goal is to kind of walk through these beautiful titles, these descriptions, to see the blessing, and this great blessing, but also to see the responsibility that goes with these titles before our relationship with God. So, today we're going to begin with this idea of being a disciple. Being a disciple. Um, Jesus Christ himself talked about the importance of this term 
when he said to his disciples, the 12 apostles, uh, actually it was 11 apostles at this point, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the risen Lord Jesus Christ on a mountaintop overlooking the Sea of Galilee said this, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What Jesus is saying is this, I'm the Lord. Everything is now under my control. Go therefore, he was telling those folks there, as he tells the church today, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Beautiful talk about the Trinity right there. Teaching each of these disciples to observe or to obey all that I, Jesus, have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the very end of the age. So, according to this, people are not just believers in Jesus. People are, are not just uh, uh, put their faith in Jesus. People who really repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ by faith are called disciples. So, if you are a child of God here today by faith alone in Christ alone, say it with me. I am a disciple. One more time. I am a disciple. We're going to talk about what that means in the next few minutes together. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, thank you again for grace and mercy that reaches out to us in our need and draws us to Jesus. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. And so thank you for bringing us into this relationship. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's exciting. But there's also responsibilities to go with the blessings. And so I pray, Father, as we walk through this idea of being a disciple, that perhaps the Spirit of God would lodge something in our hearts and minds that would help us to walk out of here differently in light of this. So I ask for liberty, the Holy Spirit to have liberty in our midst to speak to our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said this morning... Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Let me just begin by unpacking a little bit about what the word disciple means. The word disciple, or the word plural, disciples, is used 260 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. So in the first five books of the New Testament, the word disciple or disciples is used 260 times. It comes from the little Greek word that is Mathetes, mathetes, which simply means this. A disciple is one who is a learner, someone who is instructed. It refers to a student or a pupil. Now, I need to take just a minute and kind of decondition us a little bit. Because in our context today, here in the 21st century, when we hear the, the word student or we hear the word uh, pupil, what we think is a classroom, don't we? So we think of a classroom with desks and, and books and pencils and if you're really good, a pen. And, and you have a teacher who instructs the pupils as to what they're supposed to know. So in a lot of ways, we kind of think of it as a classroom setting where, where information is given. Can you imagine if it really meant that? What it would have looked like in Jesus' day? Think about this. So Jesus shows up and he's got these, these desks, 12 desks, and all the disciples are sitting at their desks. And he says, Have you got all got your pencil sharpened? Yes, yes. 
Uh, come on, Andrew. How many times have I told you you've got to sharpen your pencil before class begins, not once we get started? Hey, Peter, sit still. Peter, sit still. I swear that kid has ADHD. I mean, I think he's just over the top. He needs some Ritalin or something. And, and so, you know, Judas, Judas, how many times have I told you to stop looking on Andrew's paper and give him back his milk money? Come on, Judas. Come on. Yes, Bartholomew, you can go to the bathroom. This is the last time, though, Bartholomew, you can go to the bathroom. So, you know, that's silly. That's silly. But we think of a pupil or a student as, as somebody who sits and absorbs teaching by a teacher. But that's really not what Jesus did in the first century. However, today, we can carry that idea of being a learner, a pupil, or a student into the, our concept of discipleship today. And so, you know, you think, well, I showed up at church on Sunday morning, and I, I, I lifted up my hands in worship, and I heard Pastor Bill talk. He does that a lot. He, I heard him talk. And so I, I learned something, and so that makes me a, a disciple. And then I, I go to uh, Rico Marquez's class, The Gospel Project, on Sunday nights. In the fall, it's going to kick off again, so get ready. But I go there, and he teaches me, and I learn. So I'm obviously a disciple because I'm in this teaching environment, and they're talking at me, and I'm learning. I'm taking notes. And, and, you know, I, I go to Sunday school or I go to study groups or I'm involved in a small group. And I think we think because we're doing all of this absorption of information that that's what we're supposed to do, right? Isn't that what a disciple is? We're supposed to get all this stuff. Well, as we're about to see, that's really not what the word disciple means at all. Now, some of it involves instruction, but actually the bulk of it doesn't. Let me explain. So today, a disciple is not so much a student as we would think of a student in our context today, but perhaps the closest equivalency to ancient discipleship, as Jesus put it forward, would be what we call today apprenticeship. An apprenticeship. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Dallas Willard. He is now in the presence of Jesus he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. If you're looking for a book to read, let me recommend this. It'll shake your world. It's called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. In that book, he talks a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks a lot about discipleship. He has this to say concerning uh, being a disciple. Discipleship to Jesus is the very heart of the gospel message. The really good news for humanity is that Jesus is now actively taking students in the master class of life. Woohoo! The gospel is about living now as his apprentice in kingdom living, not just being a consumer of his merits. And you know, we all want to come to Jesus by faith and receive forgiveness. We all want to enjoy that love with which he loves us. We all love the mercy and the goodness. That's the bennies. That's the good stuff. That's the blessings in this relationship. But along with that comes responsibility in this relationship. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. So a biblical disciple is a lot more like an apprenticeship. It's like learning a trade where you get some classroom instruction, but it's coupled with hands-on, on-the-job training to gain measurable competencies in a particular field. And the field we're talking about here is the field of life. And this is what Jesus Christ gives us in this apprenticeship. So I, I have been working uh, with Doug. Doug Dixon, hey, wave like this, Doug. Hey, man, Doug is now an apprentice in the electrician's union. 
And so he and I meet on Thursday nights, and we're kind of walking through a study together. Soon you'll be seeing him up here getting uh, wet in baptism. But, you know, the cool thing about, uh, about uh, an apprenticeship, let me explain to you how it works with the electrician union. Uh, before an electrician can work unsupervised, they are required to serve an apprenticeship, which can last anywhere from three to five years under the general supervision of a master electrician. And usually under the direct supervision of what's called a journeyman electrician. The apprentices are schooled and tested, indeed, in electrical theory and in electrical building codes. About 144 hours is classroom instruction. However, the bulk of their training is hands-on, on-the-job training. Somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 hours is required to complete the program. So as we look at this, I think this is a good parallel as to what Jesus means about being his disciple. Some of it involves classroom instruction. You're all sitting dutifully in your, at your desks here. You got your Bibles out. You're taking information in. You're writing it down. You're getting instruction. That's great. But please understand, that's a very small part of what this discipleship thing's all about. It's not all white-collar work. Let me say that one more time. It's not all white-collar work. You're going to get your fingers dirty. It's going to require you to get a little messed up in the process. A lot of this is just simply blue-collar hard work if you're really going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to unpack that more as we move forward. But I, I just want to say this. Jesus. <laughs> I could say that and just be praying we're done. Jesus is the master. He is the master at life. And he is the master at the craft of living our lives in obedience to God's revealed will. He is the master at showing us how to bring glory to God the Father. And so Jesus is the one who is the master electrician, if you will. There are a few journeymen, but almost all of us are apprentices in this progress of becoming like Jesus Christ with our lives. So, Jesus is actively taking on new apprentices. That to me is exciting. Just the thought of that. Jesus wants to take you to himself, and he wants to walk with you, or have you walk with him through life. And what he is doing is he is giving us the skills of living radically new and different lives. Lives that were once characterized by, and Paul said in Galatians 5, these words, Lives that were characterized by the flesh, sensual, uh, sexual immorality and impurity and lustful pleasures and idolatry and sorcery and hostility and quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of anger and selfish ambition and dissensions and divisions and envy and drunkenness and wild parties and sins like these. Wow, I just read the newspaper. Sorry. Uh, uh, so these are the realities uh, of us apart from God. But when we come into apprenticeship with Jesus, what he gives us is this beauty. He gives us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He's in the, the, the mission of radically transforming our lives. And that's what this apprenticeship with Jesus is all about. Jesus himself put it this way. I came that they may have life. And it's not just any kind of life. It's an abundant life. 
The ESV puts it that way, but the NIV puts it this way. I have come that they may have life, and they can have it to the full. And then the New Living Translation puts it this way in John 10.10. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. How many of you would like your lives to be characterized by those wonderful fruits of the Spirit where you have life abundantly to the full, rich and satisfying? This is what Jesus offers us in this program. And as these things become more and more true in our experience, the Father is glorified. You're glad. And trust me, everybody who knows you is glad because you're now better than you've ever been before. You see, it's all about bringing about the best version of our lives. That's what this discipleship, that's what this apprenticeship program is all about. It is ultimately to make us more like Jesus. Now, just before we actually kind of get in there and and kind of pull all this apart and talk about all these details and talk about how we can be the best apprentice we can be, uh, first of all, I want to welcome you to the union. Since we're talking apprenticeships, I'm going to welcome you to the union, union with Christ, I mean. And this just happens to be local 13,000 Zakiah. We're just one more branch of the bigger union. Uh, But in this, we are learning a trade. And the trade is how to live lives that honor the Father, that are beautiful for us and good for others. That's what this apprenticeship program is all about. Okay, here we go. The apprenticeship with Jesus, this apprenticeship program with Jesus, begins in earnest, in earnest, with what I would call a surrendered life. It begins in earnest with what I would call a surrendered life. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he started walking this earth in his earthly ministry was, was these words. Jesus said, what? Read. He said, re, he said, re, he said, what? He said, what? You're going to say it like, like people need to hear it. What, what, what do we need to do? Yes. No, louder. People can't hear you. Yes. yes, that's what Jesus said. The first word out of his mouth as he began his earthly ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, repentance means a radical transformation of life when we come to the understanding of what we have been doing in light of what true righteousness is. So Jesus begins his ministry by calling people to himself with this word called repent, repentance. Now, this is still the gospel today. The apostle Paul likewise said this in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. God commands all people everywhere to repent. So this is still part of the gospel message. It begins with repentance. Literally changing one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So Jesus began like this. And then he walked up to Peter and Andrew just two verses later. And this is what he said. Follow me. Repent. In other words, you're going to change the way you're going to live your life because I'm now stepping into it. Now you need to follow me. And so those guys did. They repented and they followed him. And then Jesus, even in the great invitation in Matthew chapter 11, that we all love so much, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened or laden, and I will give you rest. That's so beautiful. We like that. Oh, Jesus, draw me close. I need rest. I want forgiveness. I need to experience all this. Okay, come to me. But do understand, 
Next, you're going to take my yoke on you. You see, this is part of the deal. You come to me, that's cool. But in coming to me, I will give you rest, but you've got to understand, when you come to me, you're giving up your life. Repent, follow me, take my yoke upon you. This was Jesus in, in the Gospels as he approached people about discipleship, about apprenticeship with him. And then he kind of summarized it with these words in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, this means in comparison to their love for Jesus, if they do not hate their father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my what? Cannot be my apprentice. No, you can't be. Whoever does not bear his own cross, which is an instrument of death to self, and come after me cannot be my, what's the word? Yeah, apprentice. So Jesus makes some very high claims on the front end of a relationship with him as to what it means to know and follow him. Last week, we used some verses that I just want to reference right now. Last week, as we talked about being, uh, devoting ourselves to good works, we went to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, as you see them right there, it's beautiful. To bring you into a relationship with God the Father, it costs Jesus his life. For by grace, through faith, you have been saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's all of Jesus is doing. All of his doing. And it cost him his life to bring us into a relationship with the Father. By grace through faith, we were brought into this relationship with God the Father through Jesus' sacrifice alone. But, don't miss the rest of the verse. For we are his workmanship, we'll actually spend a, a week on that word in, in coming days. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, notice, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice, we're supposed to walk in a particular way that God has already pre-designed for us. It's not our way. If we're actually going to be able to fulfill the backside of this, if we're actually going to be able to glorify the Father... In order to glorify the Father, it's going to cost us our life. On the front end, forgiveness is found in Jesus giving up his life for you. But in that process, we're called to give up our lives for him so that we can ultimately live our lives to glorify the Father. You know, I try. I try. I really do. I try to be explicit when I give a, an opportunity for people to, to come into relationship with God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. I try to be explicit. And I use language like this. This is my attempt. I talk about embracing Jesus Christ with your life. Do you see the, the implication there is it's going to take your life to embrace Christ. I, I, sometimes I'll use words like, and, and, and now uh, as we're praying, Jesus, I take you as the Lord and leader of my life. And, and I'd like to think it's explicit. But what most of us get out of that is, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, woohoo! And we forget about the rest. But you really can't have one without the other. And as I'm about to share with you, I think one naturally leads to 
the other. Let me explain from uh, my own experience. Now, I don't want to say that my experience is meant to be normative, but my experience has been this, and I think experience helps in, in, in explaining this. I came into relationship with Jesus Christ on June the 6th, 1985. That was at the end of a five-year period of time where I was going through agoraphobia, and my life was becoming more and more limited. Panic attacks were coming more and more frequently. And I was just living a life of isolation. And, you know, the medication didn't help. The counseling didn't help. It was just getting worse. So in that moment of hopelessness, where I was considering self-harm, in that moment of helplessness, Billy Graham was on TV. And that night, I listened, and Billy Graham made it clear that the problem in my life was something called sin. Sin causes separation, and I was separated from everybody I cared about. It wasn't necessarily agoraphobia, it was sin was my issue. But the greatest problem was my separation from God. So that night, he invited me into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I remember it very well. If you're tired of the way your life is today, give Jesus Christ a chance, you'll never be sorry. So that night, I go down on my knees, and I said, I don't really understand all this, but this much I know. My life sucks, and I've really ruined it. If Jesus, you can take this life and do something good with it, please take it. So that night, I came into relationship with Jesus. And, you know, I found my mother's old Bible, and, and I began to read it. Now, you can remember, I'm, i got agoraphobia going on in my world, and so I'm not really going anywhere. I'm just in this bedroom in Maine reading this Bible. And as I'm reading through the Bible, my heart is to please God. My heart is to honor God. And so I finally get to 1 John. Oy. And there in 1 John, I keep reading these verses about the people of God loving the people of God. And how if you're really one of his, you're going to love his people. And I'm thinking, but I've got agoraphobia. I've got the perfect excuse. I don't want to go to church. And he kept saying, no, this is what I want for you. This is what I want for you. And I'm like, oh, gosh, really? Yes, okay, birds of a feather flock together. I'm now a follower of Jesus. I should find some other followers. Okay, so I go to church for the very first time on uh, May the 28th. It was Memorial Weekend, May the 28th, 1986. About a year later. And so I go to church and I come there and they're saying, well, you're a new believer. You need to get baptized. Oh, okay, I got to get baptized. So I get baptized. Oh, you need to serve. So they put me in the sound room because that's where all agoraphobics go because you're going to deal with people. So they put me in the sound ministry. Sorry, guys. Uh, and, and, and then they had me be a listener and a wanna. Okay, I'll do whatever you tell me. I'm trying to follow this path as best I understand it. And then ultimately they make me the, the, like the teacher of a third grade girl's Sunday school class. Okay, I'll try it. I just hope I don't ruin them. And, and, and so I'm doing this. But what I want you to see is, I embraced Jesus in 85. I, I started this pathway of obedience in 1986. It came to the point where I started to make strides as I was in the church. But in 1987, September the 30th, a man of God by the name of Wendell Calder came to this little church in South Paris, Maine. And he opened the scriptures and he said something I never really heard before. What he said was, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Now glorify God with your life. And I'm thinking, oh, it's not about me anymore. Now it's been two, two years, two and a half years. And all this time I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to figure this out. And that man finally put his finger on the scriptures that basically said, it's not your life. Give it up. And that night, I remember going forward in this meeting, and I grabbed this, this little card he had, and I stuck it in the front of my Bible, and it's been there ever since. 
It says this, all I am, all I have, all I ever hope to be, I now and forever dedicate to the Lord Jesus Christ for his use and glory absolutely, unconditionally, now and forever. I got it for the first time that my life belongs to him. It's not about me. Now, I know people call this a second work of grace. You know, you got saved over here and now you're dedicating here. No, no, no. That's not how it works. It's all the same faith. If it's genuine. See, genuine faith causes you to be born again. And with this new life in the Holy Spirit, you start making strides in your walk with the Lord. And when this information, this truth comes to you about surrendering your life as a child of God, of true faith, you're like, I'm in. I get it. I'm here. Take me. It's a natural progression of faith to come to the point of surrender to Jesus Christ. Now, that's how it played out in my experience. I think that for kids who grow up in the church, you know, you grow up and it's Jesus talk all around you, and you, you know, you just, you just always assumed you've been a believer. That's cool. But I think for younger people, when they get a little bit older, there needs to be this moment where they understand it's not my life. I've been bought with a price. I'm here for Christ's sake, not mine. To me, this is an indication that was genuine. If there is never this, that never happened. Does that make sense? It is a natural progression of faith to lead to surrender. Think about uh, getting married. July 23rd, 1988. Today, 29 years ago. I was, yeah, amen. And I couldn't be happier. But that day, standing on a stage at that little church with about 200 people in attendance, my wife said, I do. And I looked at her kind of like, oh, I do too. I love this girl. I want this girl. So she slipped a ring on my finger. It was awesome. It's kind of like coming to Jesus for the first time. It's like, oh, it's awesome. It's all about this relationship. And it's all gooey and wonderful. Woohoo! But, you know, shortly thereafter, we're kind of like living life together. And all of a sudden she says to me, no, you're not allowed to date anybody you want anymore. What do you mean I'm not allowed to date anymore? When did that happen? When you put the ring on? Oh. And then you're walking along. What do you mean I can't spend money however I want? Oh. You see, we made the commitment here, but the realization that it's not about me has been growing over 29 years. And friends, the reason why relationships don't work is because too often people remain as two independent units rather than dying to themselves and finding beauty in oneness. It naturally is supposed to happen in these relationships that are the most important. And that's especially true in this relationship with Jesus Christ. So. Um, a man by the name of Tim Keller. Uh, I love Tim Keller. Uh, he's now retired to Florida where he continues his ministry life. He's left his church in New York City. But Tim Keller had this quote, and I loved it because it's so true. Christianity isn't something you add to your life. It's an explosion that changes everything. And friends, Jesus Christ will welcome you in love. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. But I'm going to blow your life up as I put my yoke on you, and you're going to walk with me to glorify God the Father. That's just how it works. It naturally comes to that place of complete and utter surrender. You know... Um, so, 
I'm thinking I'm not explicit enough because it doesn't seem like a lot of people get this concept. Uh, I try, embrace Jesus with your life. You know, it's a relationship uh, where Jesus becomes the Lord and leader of your life. You know, uh, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you the most explicit understanding of the gospel I can. And hopefully you don't miss it this time. Uh, actually, I'm going to let another man do it. His name is Steve Lawson. Uh, he's at a church called Grace Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. He says this about as explicitly as anyone I've ever heard say it. So, get this, if you didn't get what I'm talking about. You need to weigh in on the cost factor and count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It will cost you popularity. It will cost you promotion, perhaps, at times. It will cost you an easy life. You will have to discipline yourself. You will have to buffet your body. You will have to say no to temptation. You will have to say no to this world. You will have to break with the crowd. You will have to be willing to stand alone for Christ. You will have to be willing to walk to the beat of a different drummer and to, to step out of the crowd even if no one follows after Jesus Christ. You'd be willing to stand if you're the only person in the world for Jesus Christ. That's the cost factor. You would have to be willing to suffer persecution for Christ. And let me tell you, it will come. It might even cost you your life. He is not coming to play games. He is not coming to be docile. He is coming to dominate and he is coming to slaughter. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. And at the end of this age, He will bolt out of heaven on a white steed, and His garments are dripped in blood, the blood of His own enemies, and He is coming back to conquer and to damn. You need to make terms of peace with this coming king or you will be subjected in damnation forever and Jesus Christ has made terms of peace you need to settle out of court with him you do not want to go into that final day of conflict with Christ he will be ruthless in the execution of his justice but he offers you mercy today he will agree to terms of surrender he will agree to terms of peace but they are his terms of peace not ours and his terms of peace are very simply this you must hate your own father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life more than me or you cannot be my disciple and you must take up a cross and follow me or you cannot be my disciple and if you do not, you will meet me in the final judgment and it will glorify God in your destruction. He is pressing you for a decision. He will not be put off. You cannot hit the mute button any longer in your heart. You must answer to him. In verse 33, so then. Conclusion. None of you can be my disciple 
He is saying, none of you can be a true Christian. None of you can be in my kingdom. None of you can be in right relationship with me or the Father. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What is our Lord saying? He's not backing off. He is increasing the commitment that he is calling for with every line of this section. Well, he's not saying that you have to buy your way into the kingdom of heaven for none of us have enough gold and none of us have enough silver to ever remove the stain of sin that has defiled our inner soul. What is he saying? Who does not give up all of his own possessions? Well, this must be taken in context with other texts of Scripture. And let me just cut to the bottom line of the bottom line. You must transfer the ownership of all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. That's what He's saying. Your life is no longer your life. It is now His life. Your time is no longer your time. It is now His time. Your possessions are no longer your possessions. They are now His possessions. Your future is no longer your future. It is now His future. Your treasure is no longer your treasure. It is now His treasure. And you have transferred all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. That's what it is to meet his terms of peace. Yet the exchange is not bartered or bought with real money, but it is purchased with the total, complete surrender of your life to Christ. That's what saving faith is. It is coming to the end of yourself completely and entirely entrusting all that you are and all that you have to all that he is. Amen. A lot of us here start out like me. Uh, I embraced Jesus because I didn't understand everything, but I just knew that I needed something different in my life. But as I made my way along in this, this Christian life, the Spirit of God guiding me and people instructing me, I was making choices. But when information and truth hit me that it's not my life, that it belongs to Him, I was all in because genuine faith naturally comes to the place of surrender to the person of Christ. So I just want to encourage you today that if you think, I did this and I'm saved, but your path has not led to a place of surrender, you need to go back and rethink what happened there. Because of necessity, faith, true faith, ends up leading to surrender to the person of Jesus Christ with your life. And when that happens, that's when true apprenticeship starts. That's when it gets really good and really earnest in your life. And Jesus can really make mega changes in your life that ultimately will glorify the Father and make you wonderfully uh, <clears throat> glad that you're in relationship to him. Let me quickly move forward and just talk secondly. Not only does it begin in earnest with a surrendered life, 
But this apprenticeship with Jesus where he's radically transforming our lives, ultimately to become like his life, this apprenticeship with Jesus uh, progresses with daily personal devotion. With daily personal devotion to Jesus Christ. Now please hear this. Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is the master at life. Only he has ultimately lived a life that's fully pleasing to God the Father. In fact, notice what Jesus said. Jesus said of himself, my food is to do the will of the Father to accomplish his work. Again, I have come down from heaven not to do what I want, but to do the will of him who sent me. Again, I always do those things which are pleasing to the Father. And when Jesus was at the end of his life praying in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he said this, I have glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Everything about Jesus screams satisfaction of the Father. He did it right. He did it perfectly. He never sinned because his whole life was lived in obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit and to the will of God the Father. So there is no one else who is qualified to be the master electrician over this, this union. Jesus Christ alone is the master of life. And he is the one who ultimately is called to train us to be like himself. In fact, the father was so pleased with his son that he told those gathered on that uh, Mount of Transfiguration these words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what does he say? Now, he said that when Peter was talking. Peter, Peter's talking. Oh, should we make a uh, place over here? Let's, let's make place. Hey, Peter, shut up. Listen to him. And in a very real way, that's exactly what God is saying to us. We all have our own plans, our own desires, our own, our own goals. But in a real way, the, the Father is saying, shut up. Listen to him. Because he's the only one who did it right. And it's in this relationship, this, this um, apprenticeship with Jesus Christ, in a very personal way, that we ultimately grow in this thing called living life to honor and glorify God. So what does all this mean? All this means this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ made it very plain to the people of his day, you have to follow me. I want you to understand nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Jesus still says to all those who are his, follow who? That's it. He is the only one who did it perfectly. He is the only one who can be the master at training us and teaching us. He went on to say to those people with him, you got to take your, my yoke upon you and you have to learn from who? Me, Jesus. He, again, is the only one who did it perfectly. And by the way, Jesus made it plain. Behold, I am how often with you? That's it. He's not gone anywhere. There's a Latin word for this, and a friend of mine gave it to me. I went out to lunch with him this past week. Uh, the Latin word for this is quorum deo, quorum deo. It means to be always before the face of God. We are always living every moment of our existence before the face of God. And in this place of being before the face of God, we are called now to live this out. What I'm talking about is, is simply this, and I'll end with this. 
We can come to church, please do, <laughs> and listen to a lecture, please do. Take good notes, please do. We can get into a Sunday school class and, and be under good teaching, please do. We can go to the Gospel Project and be under that instruction as we walk through the Older Testament, seeing how Jesus shows up in each of these Old Testament books, please do. We can be in small groups, study groups, we can be in discipleship groups, but please listen. All of that is the 144 hours. The four to 6,000 hours of hands-on, hard, day-to-day work happens in your personal time with God. Every single day, taking his word in his presence before his face. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they're following me. And so as we meet with the Lord, we're literally hearing his voice and he's helping us to follow him. And as we do so, we understand that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, which is right living, that the man or woman of God will be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the four to 6,000 hours. It takes discipline. It's hard work. But this is the blue-collar side of the Christian life. It's easy to come to church. I know it's hard, but it's really easy. But it's so hard to get out of the gospel project that meets on Sunday nights and all that. I know it's hard, but it's really easy. The hard part is at home, day by day, meeting with God face to face in his word, asking for wisdom, asking for instruction, getting to grow and know him more and more. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see, every day, We are called to have a personal time in the presence of Jesus as he has called us to follow him, to take his yoke upon us and to learn from him. And in these days, we're growing and learning and becoming more like him. It doesn't happen by coming to church. This is some classroom instruction to say, get in the word. (laughs) It doesn't happen in the gospel project. That's classroom instruction to say, get in the word. It doesn't happen in Sunday school. That's classroom instruction to say, get in the word. This is what changes you. Moment by moment, day by day, little by little, God changes us. And I love this verse. It comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. It says this, And all we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This, my friends, is the key to your progression and growth in this um, project, this apprenticeship with Jesus. Okay, I'm just going to end with this You will become what you love. It's just that simple. You will become what you love. And you will do what you love. And if you don't love Jesus, you will not become like him and you will not do what he wants you to do. And so a lot of this daily grunt work in the scriptures before the face of God in in the presence of Christ is designed to give us a growing love for the person of Jesus Christ. 
to the point where we are willing to become like him and to do what he wants done in our lives. Again, you'll do what you love and you'll become what you love. My prayer for us as a people of God is that we would love Jesus Christ so much that he would radically transform our lives. I just want to say that if you're not in the scriptures daily, let me just give you an opportunity. Do you know where Matthew is in the Bible? Matthew, beginning of the New Testament. You know, you get to the New Testament and you go, Matthew, it's that one. The first one, Matthew. I want to encourage you, if you're not in the habit of daily meeting with the Lord in his face, in his presence, take Matthew, the book of Matthew, start reading. Oh my gosh, there's a huge genealogy there, Pastor Bill. I know, get beyond that, you'll be okay. So there's a genealogy. But I want you to ask yourself just two questions. Just, just two questions every day, just to spend a few minutes. Number one, what is Jesus showing you about himself? Because the word reveals him. Let him be revealed to you. So read Matthew, and then allow that, that truth to, to speak to you about who he is. And then secondly, what does he want you to do? That's two questions, that's all. Just sit in his presence, read the word. Before you do, just say, Jesus, show me yourself and tell me what you want me to do today. If you do those two things, I guarantee you, he'll start to show you himself and tell you what to do today. Now, the problem is most of us are frightened by what that means. But what if he doesn't want me, what if he wants me to do something I don't want to do? <laughs> all I am, all I have, all I ever hope to be, I freely, fully give to thee. It's not my life. It's yours. Let's pray. <laughs> Kids are getting restless. Let's pray. The adults are getting restless. Father, uh, thank you so much for being willing to take people such as us under your wing. Jesus, thank you for being willing to guide us into holiness and beauty and, and, and joy and love. I just pray right now that each individual would be before the Holy Spirit asking themselves right now, am I fully surrendered to Jesus Christ? And then next, I need to be in the word. I need to be in the word. Help them, I pray, Father. And that's why we are here as a church, is to help people to grow in this area of their lives. Father, to the glory of our Father, I pray. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.